This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. This week, I flew out to meet with the executive leadership team of a hospital. This means the chief executive officer, chief financial officer, chief nursing officer, chief medical officer, and so on. Invited to the meeting were also the clinical leaders and even intensivists of the five ICUs of this hospital. The objective of the meeting and my presentation was to focus on the financial benefits of an awake and walking ICU. My mission was to help the financial stakeholders understand the financial and legal liabilities and costs of sedation and immobility to inspire them to invest thousands to save millions. This would mean bringing in techs, potentially more nurses, PTs, etc., whatever the teams needed to successfully become awake and walking ICUs, and they would see a huge and instant return on investment. Though my main focus was the numbers, I did briefly share some short clips um, from survivors about how they have suffered from sedation and immobility. But the rest of the 45-minute presentation was focused on how to save money through best evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. At the end, an intensivist raised his hand and said, quote, I have seen numerous horror films that were graphic, gory, and harrowing, yet they are nothing compared to this presentation. I am traumatized by what I have just heard. I had no idea that this is what I've been doing to my patients my 30 plus year career. We have to fix this so I never have to sit through this agonizing presentation ever again. I was shocked to have such a response. I realized that as I was showing in the numbers how preventable these infections, pressure injuries, delirium, deaths, prolonged lengths of stay, readmissions, tracheostomies, etc. were, and that best practices could drastically turn it around, this intensivist was having flashbacks in his mind to the innumerable instances in which he had seen that damage in action. I think the numbers became real people, real patients, real suffering. His colleagues all shook their heads and agreed. They didn't know. They didn't want this to be happening and they were desperate to change it. It reaffirmed to me that though the financial benefits are profound, even that discussion comes back down to humanity and compassion. No one wants to traumatize, injure, or even cause the demise of our patients. Just recently, I had a friend from my past post online a few weeks ago that her husband was intubated for influenza and being flown to a large and leading hospital. I instantly called her. It was an overwhelming situation to say the least. I tried to tell and warn her of what was to come, yet it was quote, a leading hospital. So she understandably trusted them. She did ask the questions I encouraged her to ask, but was immediately shut down by the team. They would say, he's intubated, he can't walk, or he's sleeping, he's more comfortable this way, etc. Fortunately, he was extubated five days later. He's been a total of 11 days in the ICU in florid delirium. He's now home and finally emerging from the delirium and started to talk about his side of what he experienced in the ICU. Sexual abuse, past traumas were replayed, neglect, isolation, terrors outside of what critical illness could have done to him. He is traumatized and broken. He was a professional golfer in his 40s and father of six kids. His family needs him to be the full, functional, and best him. So now what? 
how can we help survivors recover from the trauma of the ICU and especially ICU delirium? Dr. Brian Peach joins us now to share his exciting work in post-ICU PTSD. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you introduce yourself to us? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on. Uh, I love what you're doing with your podcast. Um, So my name is Dr. Brian Peach. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida, uh, where I do research with uh, critical illness survivors uh, and also teach critical care courses and acute care uh, adult health courses. And how did you get into um, this interest that you have in ICU survivorship? You know, it's it's kind of become a passion project. Um, I've been a nurse for over 18 years. Um, most of that time has been in critical care. And, you know, I started reading about some of the outcomes of critical illness survivors and uh, some of the challenges they had in terms of uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD. Uh, and I found that very troubling, uh, the idea that we would pour so much into saving survivors' lives only for them to have a terrible quality of life afterward. Um, So it really just became kind of a passion thing. And I thought, okay, what can we do? What can we learn from them? And what can we do to try to help them? Uh, And so really, that's the impetus behind my research. And as you've been researching, what have you Mm -hmm. learned that you wish, what, 15 years ago, Bedside Brian understood? Sure, absolutely. Well, um, number one, uh, I think many of the issues that ICU survivors um, develop uh, actually start in the ICU. Uh, So they start with delirium. We know that uh, people who develop delirium in the ICU are much more likely to have long-term mental health issues after they leave. And it's not just mental health issues. Um, You know, it's cognitive issues and it's uh, physical issues as well. Uh, so, you know, I think number one, had I known years ago uh, things that I could do to try to prevent those issues, and had I known that these were even issues, uh, I probably would have been a lot more proactive uh, in terms of mobilizing patients, in terms of um, being very careful with my sedation selection. Uh, so, there's a number of things that I think I would have done differently. Um, also, it's another thing to hear from ICU survivors directly, as opposed to just reading about their outcomes. And so they really had an impact on me. Uh, You know, I've learned that uh, many of them have PTSD that resembles sort of what soldiers experience, um, uh, or what first responders experience, or uh, mass casualty event survivors. They have triggers, they have uh, things that they see, things that they hear, things that they smell, that trigger PTSD. And, uh, you know, it isn't just for, let's say, a week or a couple weeks after their ICU admission. It goes on for months, sometimes years. Uh, it impacts their quality of life. Um, and I've kind of always had this mantra that, you know, when patients come in for one problem, they shouldn't leave with three to four new ones. Um, and so really, that's that's driven my interest. I think that's one of my big ahas as well mm-hmm. the fact that someone can come in for pneumonia yeah with a neuromuscular condition so yeah. like post-ICU dementia PTSD I mean their lungs can heal but then that's the least of their problems right absolutely and maybe when I had th- thought of the concept of post-ICU PTSD before I would think 
okay, if they smell saline or mm-hmm. if they smell things that are directly related to the ICU, yes, it'll remind them of the ICU. But talking to survivors, it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong as far as the majority, but right. oftentimes these triggers are not medical. Like yes. one survivor said that she believed that she was in a coffin or she was in the morgue. Mm-hmm. And the instrumental music that the nurses were playing in the background played into this scenario. Yes. So every time she gets in an elevator and an instrumental music plays or the grocery store, it's a trigger and she's lost back into that morgue trying to tell them, don't bury me alive. Yes. So what kind of triggers are you, have you heard that have been um, related to, to post-ICU PTSD? Yeah, sure. So we actually, we have a research study where we've been collecting data on what are the triggers for people. And so uh, common things are things like uh, seeing medical professionals, uh, driving by hospitals. We've heard from a number of our uh, participants in our research that they have to look away or they have to drive a different way when uh, you know going out somewhere because they don't want to drive by the hospital. Um, seeing medical equipment, uh, so things like um, uh, walkers and wheelchairs and oxygen tanks for many people uh, trigger them. Uh, I have a participant who was at Disney World and she saw uh, somebody being wheeled out on a stretcher and it took her right back to her own emergencies. So some of them are things like that, uh, things that they see on TV uh, or on social media are oftentimes triggers. Um, sounds can be triggers, uh, any kind of beeping sounds. Uh, doesn't even necessarily have to be beeping like the IV pumps or, or the alarms, the ventilator, uh, but really any kind of loud, repetitive noise uh, can trigger PTSD and, and you know take them back to uh, either memories of the hospital. Some of them don't actually remember their time in the hospital, um, but they're still sort of triggered and they can't figure out why. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it takes them back, as you said, to very painful dreams that they had in the hospital. And, you know, they didn't realize they were in the hospital at the time, but, you know, they would have these very wild, uh, crazy, vivid dreams. Uh, smells, uh, are a big one. So, uh, the smell of bleach wipes, um, the smell of, you know, other cleaning supplies, uh, sounds uh, like um, helicopter sounds uh, are oftentimes a trigger. And what was interesting is we had one person who was not life flighted. Uh, many of the people that had helicopters uh, trigger them were life flighted, but this particular person wasn't. But their room was right next to a landing pad. Okay, so they would hear that helicopter constantly coming and going. Um, one of the most interesting things that we've learned. Did they, did they know that it was a helicopter? Uh, While they were in ICU, do they know? I don't know. You know, that's a good question. And I don't know that I asked that question, um, you know, if they knew that's what it was. Because oftentimes people under the effects of sedation, they hear things, but, you know, they... They're living in a very different reality than you know you and I are living in. Um, right, like they, they're. It reminds them of the delirium, what they yes. live in delirium. It's not that they're afraid of helicopters, right? Because uh, I would suspect that patients that understand what's going on, they know yeah. it's a helicopter. Um, yeah. I mean, it may, it might make them shudder, like, oh yeah, right. when I was in the ICU, I heard lots of helicopters, but it's different than I was being shot by a helicopter in a war. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. How does delirium change that? Or why is there such a strong correlation between delirium and PTSD? 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I, I mean, I, I think, um, again, they're living in a very different reality. They're, they're under the effects of very strong, um, you know, medications, uh, their, their filtering organs are impacted, their liver, their kidneys. Uh, and so, uh, you know, their, their reality is all screwed up. And so sometimes, you know, they remember vivid things from the hospital. And we actually, as part of the study, um, we do collect information on what people remember. Uh, so sometimes they remember having the breathing tube put into their throat or having it removed. Uh, and, and sometimes they have no recollection whatsoever uh, of things. Uh, but, you know, again, they're still triggered. And then for many of them, they have these um, dreams or these experiences that reflect what were going on around them. So for example, we had a uh, very, you know, strong gym teacher, uh, you know, had lived a very healthy life prior to coming into the ICU. And uh, he remembers uh, wearing a string bikini and ripping off that string bikini. And uh, it was actually the telemetry leads. Uh, you know, he and his family later um, sort of figured out as they talked like what it was. Um, we had another, uh, actually the same person, uh, felt like he had monkeys wrapped around his legs. Uh, and in fact, it was the uh, SCDs that we put on patients to keep blood flow in their legs. So, you know, there's all these sort of weird things. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, that cognitive impairment really sort of develops uh, in the ICU. And then, you know, it, it unfortunately goes home with them. Uh, and I don't know that we are always as proactive as we should be in addressing the delirium or sometimes even recognizing the delirium. Uh, and so, you know, we may see signs that maybe they're a little off, but we don't really fully address them in a, in a way that we should. And so then they go home with, you know, those sorts of things. And I learned from one ICU survivor, I mentioned this in an earlier episode, episode 20 or so, sure. uh, I had a survivor that well, I had a patient and she was having these pseudo seizures. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went in to tell her the EEG, EEG show that they weren't real seizures. And she said, I know I've been having these. Mm. And, and rewind, she was there because of um, an attempted suicide. Okay. And so we got started talking and she'd come from, I think, Puerto Rico. And she mm -hmm. had a life full of trauma, um, hurricanes, kidnappings, rapes, terrible wow. life. But she was working as a school teacher, managing her PTSD, living yep. her life. She came to the States to um, I think visit her son or live with her son. She okay. had one of these pseudo seizures on a train and she ended up in being taken to ED intubated and then went to the ICU. Wow. Okay. But she was sedated for probably a week or so. Mm -hmm. And even though these were pseudo seizures, so she said, yes. I never did have a seizure, but I stayed on the, the ventilator. I don't know why. Now it makes sense with awakening trials. You turn on sedation, they come yep. out thrashing, you turn sedation back on. So she was probably sedated because she was intubated and intubated because she was sedated. So there she writhed in delirium mm -hmm. and she relived all those events graphically, wow. vividly. Yes. And then she had to relearn how to sit, stand, walk, swallow. And that was hard. But once she went back to her son's home, mm -hmm. she couldn't read the clock. She couldn't yes. bounce her checkbook. She couldn't function. She depended on her son for everything. Yeah. And that baseline PTSD was right in her face, but what she described was essentially that her cognitive impairments made it so she could not use her other, her baseline coping mechanisms right. to deal 
with the PTSD, the old PTSD, now the new PTSD, but she couldn't, she knew what she probably should do, but she couldn't anymore. That training is gone because her brain is broken. It just blew my mind about how cognitive function is essential for dealing and healing from PTSD. But Mm -hmm. we break both of those psychologically and cognitively. And then we don't even tell survivors or the families what they've experienced. And we send them on the way and we're like, your heart's beating. We've done our job. Go live your life. So what is available to them? How do they recover from this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, man, there's a lot to unpack in what you said there. Um, and, and and I've heard this over and over again from uh, survivors is, you know, the cognitive piece, how much they are impacted. And, and uh, oh, um, you know, there's a number of different uh, types of therapy out there, um, some of which, you know, have mixed success. Um, there is uh, a type of therapy called EMDR. Um, uh, you know, that's been used a little bit. Uh, um, and it's, I think it's, you know, a, a, about retraining the brain a little bit. Um, a lot of uh, ICU diary programs, uh, you know, there are support groups that are available on social media. Uh, for people to kind of talk through more of maybe the mental health issues, their own anxiety. Uh, you know, there, there's different treatments like that. Um, you know, we're, we're trialing a treatment right now for PTSD, uh, not really that cognitive piece, but for PTSD, and it's uh, what's known as compressed exposure therapy. Uh, so the idea is that we are um, desensitizing people, uh, retraining their brains so that they no longer react to these, you know, stimuli that they encounter. Okay. So, uh, the idea is that, uh, with repeated exposures over a two week period, uh, the people become desensitized. And so when they do see, uh, you know, a helicopter or hear a helicopter or see medical equipment, that they don't have the strong emotional reaction. Uh, and, uh, this is not a new therapy. This is actually a pretty well-established therapy. Uh, we have a clinic at our campus, uh, in Orlando, and they've been doing this work for years with first responders and active and retired military members, uh, and, uh, survivors of mass casualty events and, um, people who are sexually assaulted. Uh, and this therapy has been shown to be very effective in terms of reducing PTSD. But we're trying it with with uh, critical illness survivors. So uh, we've had some great uh, initial preliminary results uh, with those who have completed therapy. Uh, you know, I was going to mention earlier, uh, going off a question that you asked about non-medical things triggering people, that two of the people who have completed our therapy said that uh, their PTSD was triggered by lawnmowers and weed whackers. And I thought, how does that tie to the ICU? And they said that the sound that those make sounds like the bed inflating and deflating, okay? And the one said, like, I don't know how often the bed inflated and deflated in the ICU, but it felt like every 15 minutes. And she was there for uh, at least two weeks, maybe three weeks. So every 15 minutes that she was there, she kept hearing the sound, you know, going back and forth, back and forth. Um, So there are a lot of sort of non hospital, I mean, it was hospital related, I guess, but the sound that she hears outside of the hospital is, you know, just a similar sound that comes from a different piece of equipment. Um, 
So uh, we've had great response in terms of PTSD, uh, also in terms of depression, uh, and we've seen increased resiliency and physical activity and improved sleep with this therapy. So we're very excited about uh, you know, the um, pilot that we're doing. Wow, and what kind of data do you have? Yeah, so um, we are screening people uh, for PTSD and uh, depression and physical activity, resiliency, and sleep issues um, uh, right before they complete therapy, and then two weeks out, uh, so two weeks after therapy, to see if they had any kind of response, and then three months after that to see if that uh, response is sustained. Uh, and um, I can tell you that uh, I'll, I'll just share scoring from one of the participants who completed therapy. So on a zero to 63 scale, her PTSD score drops from 51 to two. Uh, her depression score on a zero to 60 scale uh, dropped from 40 to 10. Okay, her resiliency went way up, her physical activity went way up. But you know, more than just scores, uh, this is somebody who uh, has dealt with crippling anxiety uh, for the last few years. And uh, she said, you know, I couldn't go to restaurants because restaurants um, you know, are really loud. So people with PTSD have a hard time with loud noises. So, you know, dishes and uh, you know, people talking all around them, they have a hard time in general going to places with crowds. She said, you know, two weeks after her therapy, she said, I've gone to two restaurants this week. My husband and I are planning a trip to Paris. Okay, this is somebody who's uh, largely been a shut-in in many ways the last few years. Um, uh, you know, so I, I have somebody else who wasn't able to work, and that's a common thing that we hear from critical illness survivors: is because of those cognitive issues, because of those mental health issues, they're un unable to return to work. Uh, this person is back working now. Uh, she had major sleep issues where it would take her hours to fall asleep each night. Uh, she would actually check her Apple Watch multiple times a night because she was afraid she would miss signs of uh, being septic again, of getting really sick. So, um, you know, she would look at her heart rate. Uh, and now she falls asleep within 30 minutes and sleeps seven hours a night. Um, so, uh, so we've got data to support, uh, you know, some preliminary data to support the effectiveness of this intervention, but really it's the stories that impact me and like the improvement in their quality of life. Wow. I'm thinking of so many survivors that I know that still struggle with this. Yes. Yeah. Um, is this still, this is obviously still a study. Yes. More participants. So when and how will this be standardized and more accessible? Yes. Sure. Yeah. So we are um, taking participants. Uh, it, it is a active uh, study that we're enrolling people into. Um, I have flyers that I'm happy to send people. Uh, my email address is brian, B-R-I-A-N dot peach, P-E-A-C-H at UCF dot edu. And, uh, you know, we'd love to um, help people. And you don't necessarily have to live in Orlando, although you would have to travel to Orlando uh, to participate. But um, we are uh, recruiting adult uh, ICU survivors who are on a ventilator uh, and are experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And we actually screen them for PTSD um, before we can enroll them in the study. That is amazing. That is so exciting. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. 
we cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And are you still at the bedside? Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, how how has this impacted your approach at the bedside now having experiences? It's huge. Yeah. No, um, I still practice as a multi-system, uh, ICU nurse and, uh, you know, part of me sometimes, you know, I, I struggle with that a little bit because knowing what I know now, I think, do I still want to be an ICU nurse? Uh, and it turns out I do because I, I love what I do and, and we do have some good outcomes as well. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, it's I, I'm a lot more communicative, communicative, uh, excuse me, with my patients now. Uh, I used to think that, oh, they're sedated. They don't hear anything that I say. Well, just because they're sedated doesn't mean their ears don't work. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we're talking with our coworkers. And, and so I really try to be a lot more present and engaged with my patients. Uh, as I am weaning them off of sedation, uh, I try to, um, you know, communicate everything that we're doing, I communicate where they are. Uh, you know, I try to fight through that disorientation that they are feeling about where they are. Um, and then certainly, and, and this has really been something I've worked on for a long time, uh, I try to get them off the drugs. Uh, you know, I try to get them up and moving. Um, you know, I've <laughs> uh, I've known for a long time, uh, just you know, from what I've read and what I've experienced, that you know, when we load people up with uh, fentanyl for pain and uh, and Versed, uh, Versed in particular, or um, Ativan, the these benzodiazepine drugs, absolutely. Versed uh, is only second to lorazepam. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, drugs in that class. Yep. Drugs in that class are called benzodiazepines. You know, I've known for a long time that those um, drugs should be avoided. And uh, so uh, I've really kind of used what I've learned over the years to try to educate uh, my coworkers. Uh, At times they don't want to hear me, (laughs) Um, but it's, you know, just like you, Kaylee, it's something that uh, I'm very passionate about. And, you know, sometimes I think we make it really hard on ourselves because we hit people with all this sedation and then they're super confused coming off the ventilator and they're agitated and they're impulsive. And, you know, I've seen nurses that get really uh, angry and they're they're frustrated and they're saying, stop pulling at that, stop pulling at that. And and again, I've learned from the research that I've done that they, you know, they're experiencing something very differently than we are. Um, you know, there was somebody, uh, actually a couple of people who have reported that, uh, when they were having, um, when they were being cleaned up around their urinary catheter, uh, that they thought they were being sexually assaulted. Um, you know, that's horrifying to think about. So I think the more we can communicate with our patients, the better that is, uh, for them. I think the, uh, quicker we can get them off sedatives, the better that is for them. 
Uh, I think a lot of people go for unnecessary head CTs because we completely knock them out. And then we wonder why they're not waking up. And we think, oh, they must be having a stroke. And sometimes they're just way over medicated. Um, you know, I had a patient years ago, I walked into his room and I think he was in his late eighties or early nineties. And, uh, you know, he was on, I think 15 or 20 milligrams of Versed an hour and, and huge amounts of fentanyl. And, you know, as you get older and, and Kaylee, I know you know this, like, as you get older, you're those filtering organs, the liver, the kidneys, uh, you know, that filter out a lot of our meds, uh, out of our system, they don't work as well. Um, and so, you know, that, that was just kind of horrifying and I, I've never forgotten that one. And the beers criteria for geriatric geriatrics mm -hmm. still applies in the ICU. Yes. And yep. probably more especially applies. Right. Cause they're, yep. you're taking frail, vulnerable people and putting them into a very vulnerable environment and then you're plowing them with toxic drugs. Yeah. It's a Whitlock. That's such a good word. For everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good word. And, and you know, I, I have a 96-year-old great aunt right now. And, uh, you know, I think to myself, she has lived such an amazing life. I would hate for her final days to be delirious and, you know, uh, dealing with PTSD. And, you know, it's just that's not how an older adult should experience the final stages of their life. Um, and so... Uh, you know, it's very troubling in that way. So I, I get, I, I understand why clinicians, you know, they think, oh, let's sedate them so they don't have to live this experience. But they don't think about what happens after they leave the ICU. And I think they don't know. I, I think many people legitimately have no idea what happens. Well, it's not part um, of our of, education. Yeah. It's not part no. of our nursing education. It's not a part of the medical education, respiratory therapy. No one receives yes. education, I assume. In their undergraduate studies or their graduate studies, nothing was mentioned about this in my acute care nurse, doctorate in nursing practice yep. program that was yeah. very centered on ICU care. Yeah. Nothing about this. So I, if I hadn't met survivors in my own research, I would still be totally in the dark. There's no way for yeah. us to know. And so then if we don't know, how do we, one, how do we change our practices in that moment? And two... How do we prepare families and our patients for what lies yes. ahead when they have yeah. suffered delirium? Right. And what, that's what for you. How has this changed how you discharge patients or transfer them or even within your teams? Is there a way that we can improve preparing them and giving them access to resources like the one that you're developing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, um, you know, one of the things I've heard from patients and families is, you know, when I was in the ICU, I had all this care. You know, I had people coming in every hour, oftentimes multiple times an hour. Uh, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing when they're trying to sleep. You know, they need sleep. Uh, so they don't need you in there every 10 minutes. Um, uh, and we know that, uh, you know, sleep is really important for, um, you know, brain health and, and uh, healing uh, brain injuries. So, um but what I hear is that, uh, you know, we're in there all the time and then they go to the medical surgical floor and maybe the nurses come in every, you know, two, three, four hours. And then they go home and they have no one, you know, or they only have each other. You know, maybe they have their family members to help. But you're right. The, the family members do not feel equipped. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of great research uh, going on into 
you know, what the family members are experiencing. And it turns out that many times they experience what the patients do. So, you know, they report uh, some degree of PTSD, uh, you know, keeping in mind that they weren't on sedatives. And so they were sort of living the experience of their loved one being intubated and, um, and, you know, they oftentimes report depression and anxiety. And, and uh, so I think that when they are being discharged, uh, or certainly when they're leaving the ICU, we need to prepare them with the knowledge of, hey, just so you know, when people are coming off sedation, they're oftentimes very confused. But some of that confusion can, can continue after they leave the hospital. Um, sorry, my light just went out here. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, um, this is something to talk with your primary care provider about, uh, you know, make them aware that you're having these issues. And really for the primary care providers out there, one of the things that I hear a lot from um, our uh, participants is that the primary care providers don't believe them. They don't believe that they have PTSD uh, or that any of this is ICU related. They think, oh, no, this person's just anxious at baseline. And while it is true that some people are anxious at baseline and that this only kind of exacerbates things, there are many people that were had no mental health issues before they went into the hospital and they leave with a trove of mental health issues. So, you know, I think the primary care providers out there, um, you know, and the pulmonologists who are seeing people after they've left the ICU and, and other specialists, they need to be aware that this is an issue and that they can screen for it, that there are tools out there to screen for these sorts of things so that we can get people the help that, you know, they need. Oh, you're muted. Absolutely. My brain's already going through, how do I get the, your episode out to the primary care side and bring more awareness on that side? Because there is such a need. And I've heard that as well from survivors. Yeah. They're on an island and then they bring this list of symptoms to their providers and they're met with absolute disbelief, right. very little validation and absolutely no help. Yeah. And I, this is something that I've been having um, conversations with uh, other researchers about. And, you know, I just went to uh, a couple different conferences, one out in San Francisco in January, one in Philadelphia in May. Uh, I know you're familiar with these conferences, uh, you know, critical care focused. And for years now, I've attended these conferences and I've heard all about, uh, you know, the experiences of the ICU survivor. We oftentimes use this term post-intensive care syndrome. So I've been hearing presentations on post-intensive care syndrome for a long time now. Um, and so I know that in critical care settings, we know this is a thing. Um, but what I don't think is happening is this message isn't getting to the primary care providers' conferences and to their publications. And so really, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, about, you know, even though I love going to critical care conferences and publishing in those journals, I don't know that that's necessarily where the greatest need is at this point. So I've been thinking about how can we publish more in those types of you know, journals and get that message out. Absolutely. We have to hit it from all sides. Yeah. And we have a lot of data. We have a lot of evidence and you're developing more on the ICU side. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's enough to influence a change in practices. Now we just have to take what's been developed, really get it to the bedside Right. Um, to prevent a lot of this harm, but we're not going to prevent it 100%. So we need, do need to start focusing on the, the back end of critical yes. care, the post-ICU side, and making sure that we screen for them, that we catch the survivors, because that will also save their lives. Yes, 100% agree. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, who wants somebody to live 
like this? You know, who wants somebody? I mean, I hear this all the time. The uh, the fact that people are just shut in because of their mental health issues or that they can't work, you know, that their cognition is so impacted, the things that were so basic. Um, you know, one of the things I hear a lot is I can't really cook because, you know, I need a recipe. And sometimes these recipes have, you know, 20 steps, but sometimes they just have three or four and they still have a hard time with concentration. And, you know, so so things that we do in our everyday lives that are so easy to us, and maybe were easy for these people before they went into the hospital, suddenly, you know, it's a very different experience for them. Um, you know, reading a book, um, you know, things that we just take for granted, uh, these ICU survivors really, really struggle with. And so, yeah, I agree, you know, that we, we really need to address the delirium piece in the hospital. And, and we as clinicians have it have the power to do that. Uh, it's a, and, and one thing I'll just add is that, you know, sometimes I think that people get sedated heavily for our own comfort. You know, it's what can we do to make our shift easier? You know, and I think we always have to have the mindset of uh, we're working towards getting this person out of the ICU. We're working on getting this person out of the hospital. If we just sit there and we go and we talk in the nursing station and, you know, we're, we're not in our patient's room working on weaning their sedation and working on weaning their other meds, you know, it's great for us, but it's not for them. And uh, and I, I think we have to own that. Like our goal should always be having them walk home from the ICU. Yes, absolutely. And that focus and that discussion needs to start day one. Yes. Not day 13. Yes. It's day yeah. one. Yep. And like you said, you said, we make it harder on ourselves as nurses because we start these medications, we plow them with it. And then we as a nurse get to clean it up on the back end. Yes. And that's yeah. the last thing nurses need right now. And, and so I really try to be careful when I share this information at conferences and such, because it is hard to hear Yes. that yeah. what you've been taught and trained to do and what you've done diligently right. that has come at great effort. It's not that easy to sedate someone. It is in a sense for that moment. Yeah. But you look at it, you're still running at least two sedatives, controlled substances that need double checking. You have to waste them. A lot of times you have to start a vasopressor to compensate yeah. for that propofol. Then you have to give a central line for that vasopressor. Right. Turn them every two. You have days to weeks extra on the ventilator. It is a lot of work. Yes. We're absolutely. just we're just skilled at that work. We're used to it. Yeah. So to think that we do all this work for these outcomes for our patients. Yeah. It's hard, but I, but I always follow up with, it doesn't have to be this way. Yes. Yep. That scenario, these outcomes, these can be the minority. We know how to fix it. I think yep. we're really good in critical care about talking about the problem. Yeah. Over and over again, the problem, the right. problem. Great. Cool. We know the problem. We also know the solution and it deserves probably even more attention. Yes. And the solution is to avoid sedation optimize mobility, get family in there with liberal visitation and prepare our patients and families with tools to be supported and to be healed after the yes. ICU. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one other thing I'll just add to is, you know, I think a lot of nurses don't think about the synergistic effects that you're pumping all these different medications in and they impact each other. You know, um, somebody, uh, taught me this years ago. I was, it was actually in my PhD program where they were talking about cigarette smoke and how there's over 7,000 chemicals in cigarette smoke. And 
we don't know all the synergistic effects between all these chemicals. And so we're, we're pumping so many different medications uh, into our participants and uh, I'm sorry, into our patients rather. And, um, you know, we're, we're just not thinking about how they're all interacting together uh, and how that can cloud someone's mental status and cognition. And uh, so, you know, I'm realistic. I know there are probably people, maybe nurses that are listening that are like, oh, you know, no sedation, no sedation. And, uh, you know, you just want those people to sit there with the tube in their throat. No, I mean, like, I recognize that, uh, you know, patients are uncomfortable. They've got a big tube down their throat. All I'm advocating for is uh, using good clinical judgment uh, to try to get these people off as soon as possible. You know, they always need to be on the minimum, minimum that they need to be, uh, that we don't need to, you know, uh, turn up the propofol or uh, the uh, versed and uh, fentanyl to the max that they can go, to the ketamine, to the max it can go. And, uh, and I've seen that too often. I've seen patients, uh, you know, move in bed and nurses are like, oh, I better go give them a Versed bolus. They're they're moving. I don't know about you. I want my patients to start moving, right? Like I don't want them just stuck in bed. Uh, so you know, it's one thing to where you're trying to keep them safe. It's another where you're going way over the top uh, to try to knock them out uh, because they moved their fingers a little bit or something like that. Absolutely, and I think that psychomotor activity is perceived as automatically related to discomfort, and we make the movement stop. We've made the comfort to stop, the yeah. discomfort stop, right. which is obviously inaccurate, but that is the cultural training perception that we've received. Yes. And so no one's saying, you know what, I think I'm going to give a couple of extra grams to increase mortality, delirium and post-ICPTSD right. because I like it. Yes. That's yeah. not the, that's not the cognitive process happening in our clinicians, but until we understand the reality of that decision in the moment, yeah, we continue to these, uh, exacerbate these practices. And so I hope that moving forward, we give our clinicians handouts, information to pass on to our patients and survivors to say, you have suffered delirium. Here's what that is. Um, You may have these long lasting effects, but there are resources. There is therapy for the cognition and for the PTSD. I'm excited to see your approach become standardized that becomes mainstream that primary care providers post ICU clinics are saying you're home from the ICU let's work on this I believe you it's real but there is hope yeah and you know we're trying to make our therapy um very scalable uh you know that's that's ultimately I think the goal is what can we do to make it uh, so that this can be delivered in, in many different places. And the other idea is, you know, it's a two-week therapy uh, as opposed to months and months or sometimes years of therapy. So, you know, that's why we're really excited about it is we've seen great response in a very short period of time. And to those who have been delivering this therapy for years now, they're not surprised because they've seen, you know, the the soldiers that have responded really well to it. Um, but it's really exciting to see the critical illness survivors uh, respond so well to the therapy. Um, and I 100% agree with you in terms of those handouts, um, you know, and just uh, verbal education that we can give patients and families to, so they know what to expect, so that they know to seek out care. Uh, I also think you're spot on with uh, our teaching and academic uh, settings that, uh, you know, we really need to look at 
uh, what we're teaching, that we're not just teaching people, you know, how to uh, turn on sedation, but also how to turn it off. Um, and I can tell you that it, uh, my students at the University of Central Florida, they do receive that information, in their critical care course. And um, but, uh, you know, for those who might be listening, who are faculty, this is something to think about is how can we uh, improve what we teach. Uh, and, you know, sometimes textbooks are a little bit behind, uh, you know, it takes time for uh, textbooks to be published. And so, um, you know, there's enough out there in the literature on this that you can incorporate this into your teaching, into your classes. There are also um, VR goggles from Exercise that yes. have simulations that give you really intimate insight into the patient perspective during delirium and sedation. Yeah. Those should be probably standardized education requirements uh, for any clinician that is working in acute care in general, because this is not just ICU. So yes. I'm excited for the future of education. I think we're going to have a lot more modalities to provide this understanding and equip our future clinicians with this expertise. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there are some very novel tools out there. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly would never wish for our clinicians to have to experience this themselves, uh, you know, as a patient. But, you know, when you have these goggles and other tools out there like this that, you know, can give you at least a glimpse of what our patients are experiencing, I, I think that's a great thing. Um, there was one I, uh, years ago, um, I did a, a training, or I was being trained, I should say, as a graduate student uh, for people with schizophrenia. And so there were these uh, um, headphones, and you would listen through the headphones while you were trying to do different activities. And so they would play all these different sounds, and uh, I'm sorry, they would play um, different voices. And some of them would be yelling at you and screaming curse words, and some of them were whispering in your ear. And meanwhile, you're trying to complete a crossword puzzle. And, uh, you know, I had somebody that was doing a mini mental state exam on me. And she said, who is the vice president? And at one point, I had to stop her and say, I'm sorry, um, the voices. And, you know, I couldn't answer it because of what I was experiencing. So when you have tools like this, it can be so eye-opening as a clinician. And, uh, and I agree, we got to look for those sorts of opportunities and embrace them. Well, Brian, I know we've talked about hard things. I think post-PTSD yeah. and ICU delirium are always heavy and hard topics, but yes. um, you left me with a sense of hope and optimism for the future that we're going to have tools and solutions for our survivors. Yes. And hopefully all of this crosses into the ICU to bring more awareness and preventative measures. So thank you so thank much. You. I will leave Brian's email address in the show notes and as well as the transcription um, on my website. Thank, you, Thank so you so much, Kaylee. I appreciate your time. And I, I really uh, love what you were doing through this podcast. And thank you for um, the work you're doing to advocate uh, for critical illness survivors. There's a whole movement happening, and I'm glad you're part of it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.